0: welcome to today's podcast from cyber and physical security to legal and regulatory changes the breadth and velocity of risk continues to increase for corporations in fact three out of four americans say they feel more feel for today than they did 20 years ago in his book sociologist barry glasner argues that it is our perception of danger that has increased not the actual level of risk he also claims that we are afraid of the wrong risk and that there is a cost to society and a danger to corporations for focusing on the wrong things and ignoring the things that really matter. In this podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence and Stephen Lassand, the former Dean of Student Life and Lecturer on History at Harvard University, interviewed Glasner, author of The Culture of Fear, Why Americans Are Afraid of the Wrong Things, a national bestseller that was named a Best Book of the Year by Knight Rider Newspapers and by the Los Angeles Times Book Review. David, I'll turn it to you to kick us off. Barry, it's a great honor. Uh,
1: thank you. Let me start uh, a little bit with the obvious question as we're, you know, many people in the audience on a daily basis have to try to figure out uh, what they should be worried about and how to approach it. What led you to write this book and maybe you could share with our audience a little bit about uh, what you've learned along the way on the journey?
2: Absolutely. and Thanks for inviting me. Uh, basically the answer to that question is that Americans live in one of the safest times in human history and yet uh, as we just heard many are very fearful there are so many fears in the air and so many of them are unfounded and where it really started was a long time ago uh, I was about I was writing an article and then I figured out it's a whole book Uh, I started getting interested in why it was the case this goes back to the mid 90s that politicians from every spectrum and all kinds of public commentators and other people were saying that a group of people were incredibly dangerous, that they were responsible for every kind of imaginable danger, from uh, the national deficit to uh, crime and prisons, uh, overcrowding, and pretty much everything you could name. In fact, the President of the United States at that time, Bill Clinton, called this, said that this was the most serious social problem, the most serious social problem. And they were talking about pregnant teenagers, Pregnant adolescent girls who were pregnant. Uh, it's absolutely impossible that this could be true. Anybody listening to, to this can think very quickly and figure out that it's not. could never be true. Uh, this is a small group of people. They don't have that kind of wealth or power or anything else. Um, and people from the left and the right and everybody else was talking this way. And so I started thinking, wow, uh, is this an isolated situation? Oh, it turns out it's not. It's very widespread and so I started looking at this in a whole variety of areas that we'll probably talk about now and uh, that's how the book came about
1: that's great and uh, along the way uh, part and parcel is a little bit of a history lesson is it not in terms of what we've been worried about in the past and such and Stephen and I were um, sort of comparing notes we remember when Uh, Ronald Reagan was running for president. He identified welfare fraud and they found, I think, one individual who had been on, I don't know whether it was a dozen welfare um, roles and consequently, you know, the nation became consumed with the notion that uh, uh, welfare uh, abuse was one of the leading issues. And I guess, you know, in this time where we are bombarded with many media sources and social media. How do you begin to take in the information that can actually inform as opposed to misinform, uh, that you can begin to look at it in context that does not cause panic, but can begin to really uh, drive what I'll refer to as the calm, informed decisions about what people have to worry about, what enterprises have to worry about, uh, what is near-term, what is long-term?
2: I think the first step in that goes right to your example. So. How was that scare sold uh, and this this is how many, many are how they typically are by taking isolated incidents and treating them as trends right? so you find a few examples and blow them out of proportion so that 's number one. we have to ask ourselves uh, and people listening to this podcast um, are very know- knowledgeable about how to do this and many many areas that they work on personally but can you extend that more broadly and so if you hear that something uh, I is, is a widespread problem but in fact the incidents are very limited uh, that should be a huge red flag and then secondly I think we have to ask where are we getting these ideas and who's benefiting from them and a big answer to the question of why so many people are afraid uh, and why fear are so successful at what they do is that there's a lot of power and money that awaits individuals and organizations who are able to do this effectively and of course on the flip side it costs a lot of money for lots of other folks and a lot of organizations and for taxpayers and others uh, but who does this so a, you know a big question to ask always when you're confronted with any of these sorts Of scares uh, is not only are these isolated incidents are they blown out of proportion but who's doing it and the answer typically looks something like this by means of fear-mongering politicians sell themselves and their policies to voters a very important group in this Uh, TV news programs and channels cable local TV uh, live on Uh, fear-mongering to a a large extent. Uh, People who work in local news aren't shy about telling you that the motto in the newsroom is, if it bleeds, it leads. And so you don't have to have a real crime wave uh, to get the impression that crime is rising or rampant if you watch local TV news. And then all kinds of advocacy groups sell memberships and raise money this way, uh, and on it goes. Uh, Marketers are very much involved in this. One of my favorite examples is antibacterial soaps, so I hope none of your listeners live off of selling antibacterial soaps, but uh, it turns out that unless you're working in certain medical environments, uh, you're going to do just fine with regular soap if you use it properly. Uh, And and on it goes. So I I think those are some of the questions uh, that we need to ask ourselves when we're confronted
1: Uh, with these kinds of fears and scares. I guess a logical question would be, um, as you think about today's events, everything from cybersecurity to terrorism to nuclear proliferation uh, to income disparity to climate change, and I'm leaving out a few that we'll get into a little later in this call. How do you begin to think about sort of tiering those issues and what information do you need to take in to make informed decisions about what you can and should do or what perhaps you should be ignoring?
2: I think the first thing to ask always is who it's coming from, uh, where the information is coming from and what they have to gain, and then to put that in your own world. Uh, What do you have to gain or lose from this? whether it's personally or professionally or, or, or as, a, as a company or an organization. Uh, and the way to do that is, uh, comes down to something that's not all that complicated usually, sometimes it is, but that's to ask what is the real probability of this thing happening in the environment that we're looking at and how does that compare to other uh, uh, risks and dangers that we are dealing with or should be dealing with. Uh, so the main title of my book is The Culture of Fear, but the subtitle is Why Americans are Afraid of the Wrong Things. And for me, the two parts are, are equally important. And uh, we we then need to figure out, okay, what are we not dealing with that we could be dealing with, where are we spending resources, and what are the effects? And there are a lot of effects. So. Uh, anxiety levels are very high in this country Uh, if we ask what what comes of all this fear-mongering it's not trivial it's it it's very significant in terms of how we spend public dollars in terms of decisions corporations make and what I think is underlying a lot of this is how we're raising children to be afraid uh, which has huge impacts uh, down the road for them as they grow up uh, and and you know who's doing this why are they doing it uh, and if you ask that, you're going to go a long way to, to getting to to the answer of what or, or at least an approach to how to deal with with some of the specific
1: questions that's that's great Steve. Uh,
2: September 11th uh, 2001 uh, things changed uh, and they changed in a number of ways of course that we could go into but in terms of what we're talking about today uh and specifically the culture of fear the main thing that happened is in the short run the public and politicians and business leaders and others were focused uh different in a different direction than they had been so if you look back right before that what if you turned on cable news or local news or you listen to politicians talking about uh, they were going on about uh, shark attacks they were going on about shootings in schools that had been a big thing uh, and the notion before that time was uh, what I refer to as uh, the sick society narrative okay this was a story that was told widely uh, and fear-mongering it was kind of what you what you could call the overarching story Uh, in and in that story uh, the villains were domestic typically young Americans young American uh, uh, and often uh, young Americans of color but not always also suburban males were considered very dangerous at that time after the Columbine incident and other things Uh, all of those were blown very much out of proportion they were the uh, the villains in the story and the cause of everything was that there was something very sick about American society. Then comes 9-11 and that larger story, that larger narrative changes very quickly because now you have all these clear-cut heroes uh, in the uh, uh, New York City Fire Department, for starters, then uh, um, uh, American military uh, and others who are really drawn from exactly, almost exactly, the same groups that were being being talked about as, as, uh, uh, if you will, the boogeymen and boogeywomen before that, the scary creatures. Uh, So now uh, what happened uh, pretty quickly was that the Six society story faded out, and it was replaced by one in which uh, the villains were no longer domestic, they were foreign. Uh, and the story was about a great nation pulling together uh, to fight a common enemy as it should the story should be actually at that point point. Uh, and the heroes were uh, American soldiers and firemen and others as they should be again in the story uh, but then that didn't last very long <laughs> uh, things splintered very quickly after that and uh it, to go to the other part of your question, actually, one way we can get into that uh, is if you just look I think i can 't remember right now if it was six or eight months later that this was the case uh, I started looking again at what was being reported uh, and talked about a lot in, on cable TV news and by politicians and so forth. And one of the older stories was back in the news again, and that was child kidnapping. Which is a mainstay uh, in this in, in fear mongering in this country it comes it comes up periodically, and it lingers also in um, in people's memories, especially for parents and grandparents. Uh, so by the summer of two thousand two, the TV news channels and advocacy groups and others were using words like epidemic and trend to talk about what was really Again, a few isolated, unrelated child kidnappings and murders uh, just a short time after 9-11. Uh, and I raise this partly because you asked about children and, and fear-mongering about children, but also because uh, I think it shows that the, the, the relative attention uh, can shift pretty dramatically when there are people uh, promoting these kinds of concerns. Uh, and again, for anyone listening who doesn't know, uh, it, it was completely unjustified. Uh, that year, uh, abductions uh, by strangers of, of children was uh, actually down from the previous year, uh, and the children, uh, typical child in the United States is more likely to ke- be killed by falling off a bicycle than by being grabbed by a stranger. It's about the last thing that parents should worry about most anywhere in this country uh, and it has big consequences so uh, children are kept in the house you know we talk about childhood obesity it certainly isn't caused by this but it is a factor if if children can't uh, get out and, and play and they're held inside it has those kinds of effects uh, and it has effects on citizenship if you're brought up to be suspicious uh, of everyone around you and every stranger uh, it's going to have long term effects so uh, I think that uh, um, we you know we have a history of 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 this kind of fear mongering that goes on even when the larger story has changed, even when there are now these other dangers and then you know we go on from there to exercise. Uh, um, lots of irrationality about the newer dangers uh, over, over time after after nine eleven and that terror those terrorist attacks.
1: So um, Barry, just to build on Stephen's question, there's a, there's a, almost a self fulfilling prophecy here, and maybe it goes to the fact that we're genetically wired to be afraid of things, but. Uh, in today's environment, where media and politicians uh, are certainly following social media and the trends and what people are looking at and what they're interested in, uh, it seems that certainly since your first book um, that there is there are additional forces at work. In fact, politicians can be accused of being um, disconnected from the mainstream if they're not focused on the issues that are trending. On a daily basis and I'm just curious how you think about uh, what I'll refer to as you know the the rationality that we can bring around a wide range of issues and how to think about them and how to put them in context when in fact um, human emotions are being measured on a daily basis through social media it's driving what newspapers are selling What news reporters are reporting what politicians are saying it's it's almost a science and certainly what's popping up on a daily basis you know every time you open your computer
2: I think you're absolutely right so what has changed uh, over this period and you know it's hard to identify exactly when that that started uh, is uh, this kind of bombardment that you're describing uh, or you could say incessant uh, interaction Uh, You know, if you go back just a little ways, you don't have to go back that far. Uh, People basically got their news uh, and what they thought, you know, their information, at the water cooler uh, and from the morning, sometimes the evening paper, maybe, uh, you know, a a television newscast in the evening. That's changed massively, Uh, and it is certainly the case that with uh, information and quotes coming at you all the time from all kinds of sources, things are different in terms of what we're talking about. But how are they different? I think it's in terms of volume, uh, not so much in terms of how the fear mongering works, who's doing it, and what effects it has. Uh, It really has to do with how frequently it happens and the second part of what you were talking about, the feedback loop. So the feedback loop was always there. If you were a successful uh, politician, for example, um, or in some areas, a successful marketer, in in particular um, uh, areas of of, uh, uh, marketing, you did the same thing that, that you did now but in different but not in the same time and with the same volume right uh, so how uh, scares about crime let's let's talk about that for a second many politicians throughout the history of this country have won elections uh, by stoking fears of crime uh, it that, that it's a standard uh, approach uh, and so when we see it happening in the current sen- the current way it is now uh uh our current president talks about you know the carnage um, right American carnage and all uh and and all these vivid descriptions uh at a time when crime rates are down there's nothing new about that that's been going on for a long time, but what's different is we're bombarded with it, and there's that feedback loop so in the past, it would take days, even weeks, for that process to unfold, and other things could happen and change in the meantime. Now it's happening pretty much instantaneously, and so somebody in a newsroom sees a tweet, uh, and then that becomes the story that night. Uh, but what I want to emphasize is, it's the same thing in a new, you know, kind of a new container. Right. Um the parallel I would give is every generation uh thinks that the young people these days are something or other <laughs> that's not good and that's scary. Uh it's very hard to find an exception to that. I don't know what's true for the two of you, but uh my father was really really thought our generation uh, was bad news in all kinds of ways and all kinds of scary things going on. And um, when I talked to my grandfather, he thought the same thing about my father's generation. You know, and uh, it just the content is always different uh, generation to generation. But it's a pretty consistent point. And the reason I like to emphasize that is that thinking that we're always in, in, <laughs> that this is all new um, is not. Um, beneficial to understanding how this sort of thing works I'm not a historian I envy historians uh, I, I think they're the ones who really understand um, the world a lot better than any of us in the end when they do it well but uh, I do look at social trends over time and the consistency is important and then the mechanisms that make the change are important you gotta look at both
0: Thanks. If I could follow up and maybe draw together a few of the things that you said uh, linked to this idea of uh, child rearing and what's going on today, and, um, you know, children, now young adults are what we call digital natives. They're a part of this feedback loop that you've been talking about that's really important. And just as an observation, not as a criticism, one of the things I've noticed in working with college-age people for 20 years now is this whole revolution in… Uh, young people's connection to social media, becoming digital natives, occurred during this period and at the same time I've noticed that um, young people, adolescents are less likely to uh, respond um, to defeat, uh, to obstacles, they're less resilient, um, have more difficulty kind of bouncing back and at the same time um, it seems as though They're looking to adults to control whatever situation feels out of control to them and lash out as adults oftentimes I've seen um, when it seemed like they didn't have the answer to whatever was um, threatening uh, to the young person. Um, It suggests that there's, you know, I I think one thing that I would speculate you might say is that, well, you know, if we don't allow children to have access to social media until a certain age, perhaps they wouldn't become so... um, hooked into this uh, feedback loop, but I'm wondering: is there any other? <laughs> what other ways can you get the genie back into the bottle? Or is that even um, you know an issue as far as you're concerned? Yeah, if I could just build
1: on that, um, as companies hire graduates and people are brought into the workforce, or as people join, young people join government, uh, that sort of uh, approach and culture begins to you know build in institutionally. And so it, it it is also about sort of you know I've witnessed this at, at Goldman. Um, different issues would happen in the world, and there was a a certain divide between how some some people, often based on age, were looking at something versus the older people. And in part context, in part history, in part we've been there before. And it certainly came up with the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, which nobody had lived before, um, and unless they were paying attention to their grandparents, uh, really had no frame of reference. Right.
2: I, I think that uh, everything you're saying is is correct, and also wrong about <laughs> that. Uh, so it's it's correct in the description it's wrong in that this always happens so we have to figure out what's really different if if that's what we're interested in uh when i was when i was writing something else that that i worked on um i was thinking about a lot of these same issues you're raising and i looked at uh at at what happened when the radio came out it was the same thing this is going to destroy the world these kids are listening to this uh, nobody gets any real information anymore. It's whatever comes over the radio. We used to, you know, s- study this and that. Now we don't anymore. Yeah. You know, so you always get that. The beginning of rock and roll was another example, and then the beginning of rap, which I do write about. Um, same thing. Now, so in that sense, that's what I mean by by the, 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 what you said is the is the wrong way of thinking about. It. At the same time, it what's right is. It really matters how that works um, in actual context and with the actual technology uh, or whatever we're talking about. The radio really did create new things, new ways of operating, new ways of thinking, new forms of, of, of entertainment and music, and, and all kinds of other things, and advertising and, and marketing, all kinds of stuff. So, uh, going back to what we were talking about before, it changed political campaigns tremendously. So, it's also true right but it happens every time and the world continues what really is different in in significant ways um, is that generations because of key events uh, in their life and when they were growing up at, at, at key points uh, really do perceive uh, um, uh, important matters in very different ways and that means that they um, deal with them, cope with them, strategize about them uh, in different ways. So if you were brought up or came of age uh, after uh, the financial crisis, after what many people call the Great Recession or during it, you are going to think differently, no question. Uh, And that's probably going to last, just as it did for uh, the Depression generation, uh, for um, the generation that, that that came of age during Great Prosperity, uh, same kind of thing. And that's going to matter. It's going to matter every day and it's going to be important for uh, those of us who are not in that age group to understand what that's all about and how it's going to to play out in, uh, with the people we are working with or people who are working for us, uh, people we're hiring. It's it. We need to really understand that. And, and, and to my point of view, this, this goes back uh, to the, the larger point we've been talking about uh, in, on this podcast. Understanding it is what matters. Um, uh, demonizing it, being afraid of it, is really unhelpful. Uh, and demonizing the people who, particip- who um, uh, feel that way or operate that way or, or we think they do uh, is also not helpful uh in in a in a very deep sense now does that mean you know just accept <laughs> accept anybody's way of operating the one example i give uh is uh um, there there was a period i think it's mostly ended now uh of folks who were uh hired at high level positions who were quite young uh who uh cared a lot more about other activities in their lives than uh, the jobs that they were brought on to do uh, and there was definitely a population of them who were who were like that uh, is that okay uh, in the places they were hired in the organizations they were hired well the organization has to decide that right uh, and there are certainly uh, companies that learned how to uh, make make a lot of money based on working well with that population uh, especially in Silicon Valley so uh, you know it varies but yeah uh, it it matters and uh, one can accept it or not accept it but it's really about understanding uh, what the phenomenon is that the or group or phenomena that people are dealing with based on when they came. Of age, or what happened when they were young, uh, you know, the, the generation that came up during the Cuban Missile Crisis still has lots of uh, of concerns and ways of thinking and operating from that. Uh, that uh, goes to something that David, I know you're you're interested in. Uh, so you know, talk about why are we afraid of the Americans? Afraid of the wrong things uh one that i think you and i agree about that americans should be much more concerned about um is what's usually called cybersecurity, and i think a big part of that goes to what we're talking about right now uh you know if what you were concerned about was missiles right uh and you weren't brought up with this technology and you may know how to use it, probably not nearly as well as the average 15-year-old. Uh, it's very abstract for you, and if you're the average 15-year-old, right, uh, it's, it it all works, it all does what it's supposed to do, you know, right? I can, you know, I can have my Snapchat. So wh- why should I be so worried about cybersecurity? You see what I'm saying? So uh, that, that's one of the ways I think that that we go in the other direction and don't worry about things we should
1: worry about. So uh, Steve and I uh, sort of have a joint question and so one of the big issues and one of the big concerns that uh, people should have and notwithstanding some of the exposure, there's been a lack of response to it. But from an enterprise risk standpoint, and I think of this from our leading institutions of learning, uh, leading government agencies and also our leading corporations, there's been something that has sort of affected everyone by, uh, sometimes by one degree of separation at most. And uh, that is, you know, the issue around uh, addiction and how quickly adults and and young people can fall into the trap. And yet I don't think, uh, you know, there are a lot of experts who are talking, but I have yet to see what I'll refer to it as uh, someone saying, This is the leading risk that faces not only the current generation, but the generations that are coming up, and one can point to the statistics of it, and one can point to the statistics that are far greater than what history has yielded, and we're both sort of curious about how you think about that particular issue, Barry.
2: Yeah, great. What what I would say about that is uh, that it's, it's a very important issue. And part of what's gotten in the way of thinking about it and dealing with it effectively uh, is a lot of the fear-mongering. And here's what I mean. Uh, if you look at where uh, the addiction... Uh, where addictions come, what, which drugs are abused, uh, at the top is prescription medications and derivatives of prescription medications. It's not street drugs. Uh, street drugs are important but it's not street drugs. And that's what you hear about all the time. And you hear about trendy ones. Again, it matters, right? We had a crack, uh, it wasn't actually necessarily an epidemic, but when crack was prevalent, we needed to deal with it. But at that time, we really needed to be especially focused on prescription um, drug abuse. Uh, And so we need to really focus on where the problem's coming from, what makes it uh, so uh, prevalent where it is and ask uh, uh, what that looks like okay and I wish there were more reporting and policy uh, analysis on it focused in those kinds of ways and beyond that you were talking about uh, you know what are the uh, relative risks for health uh, and part of uh, going back again to the subtitle of my book, "Why Americans Are Afraid of the Wrong Things," you know, we we hear about all kinds of really low probability uh, dangers in the uh, sphere of medicine and health. Uh, and when you look at what the leading causes of death are, uh, by far, it's heart disease uh, and cancer. And then other things come way down after that. Um, but one big one, not in the same league as those, uh, is inten- uh, intentional self harm or suicide. Uh, and if we focused on on those and what people can do about those, uh, we would be better off. Uh, just as as in in your example, uh, in
1: in a more social realm with addiction, um, people will be listening to this podcast range from um, top government administrators, private sector leaders, chief risk officers, general counsel, board members, uh, school heads, et cetera, and if you were advising them about what to think about, what to worry about, if you were tiering this, uh, what would that list look like, Barry?
2: answer is really pretty simple
1: to that. Look
2: at the high probabilities in the areas that you're focusing on so if we're you know I look at the larger picture uh, for American society Uh, but if you're in a particular organization a particular line of work focus on the big ones and see which ones are growing and always ask who is selling you scares getting your mind in a different direction on the lower probability ones and what why are they doing it what's it all about and usually the answer comes back. To something that from someone who is not usually uh, quoted all that much favorably uh, and that's President Richard Nixon who put it very bluntly he said people react to fear not love they don't teach that in Sunday school but it's true people who want to gain votes gain market share whatever they're trying to do uh, often understand that and if we keep in mind that that uh, uh, sometimes they do and that they're operating from that principle, uh, we
1: can then counter it ourselves and our own lives and our own work. I think that's a great closing statement and Steve and I would just uh, add because uh, when people have been in the trenches helping to make decisions and thinking through the issues and the risks uh, long enough, invariably, there's some scar tissue that's acquired. (laughs) And, uh, and those people who don't have scar tissue I don't think are worth uh, listening to. That's a private view that both Stephen and I have. But uh, the other element here is in today's society where, um, you know, as you said, the tail can wag the dog a bit. Uh, you can absolutely be correct about probability, about data, about what we are worried about, what should be at the top, how we approach it, and to be calm and rational around other things and suspect about the people who are… Um, highlighting other issues, but invariably we all answer to various constituencies, whether they're clients, whether um, Stephen was at leading universities, Brown, Harvard, now at the City University of New York, previously at Yale as well, and there's a constituency of students, there's the faculty, there's the alumni, there's the administration, and there's the court of of public opinion, and uh, very often they're hearing a different message than the one that uh, you are so eloquently uh, preaching. So uh, this has been very, very helpful. The balancing of all this, of course, is the uh, difficult task. That's and absolutely so, right. And uh, so that's our way of maybe inviting you back for a second podcast about uh, handling handling, and communicating um, with, with people who may be taking their information in different ways and maybe balancing it differently and how to begin to... Manage both reputational exposure as well as what I'll refer to as the perceptions of fear that are driving the fear. Right.
2: Absolutely. And thank you again. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you. This is you. Been great. And congratulations <laughs> again on your book, Barry. It's just terrific. Thanks. Thanks again. Be right. well. Thank you again. Bye.